Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for May 24th, 2018. The open hostility edition of the Gap Fest. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I never have open hostility. I try to keep my hostility covert. That's not true. Yeah. <laughs> That's like an unself-aware I was statement. just making a joke for the sake of the show. Man. It was Man, <laughs> talk right about who's got the, the who's who's Kim Jong Unning here. It's, Me. I'll, I'll, I'll play Kim Jong Un. Emily I feel Baz like he John has the upper Un. hand right now. I'll be him. Uh, Unning for you. Uh, that of course was Emily Bazlon Un of of uh, New York Times Magazine, and then that other voice, um, who is maybe the Xi Jinping of this uh, this showdown, is John Dickerson of CBS this morning. Hello, John. Hi. On this week's GapFest, President Trump, on Thursday morning, this morning, canceled his planned, much, much brooded, much anticipated summit with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. What will happen next? Then... Who knew that the Russia investigation could get more toxic, more dangerous, and more confusing? We all, we all, we knew. all knew. We all did. But still, <laughs> still, there are a lot of new developments. Then Stacey Abrams dominated the Democratic gubernatorial primary in Georgia and could become the first African-American woman elected governor in American history. Is her base first strategy the way for Democrats to win? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And of course, we want to flag a great bit of news our live show coming up on july 18th the wednesday at the keswick theater in philadelphia at 7 30 p.m we are going to be doing a show in the heat of summer we will the heat of the political campaign and we'll bring emily back to her home state to offer wisdom to pennsylvania so i hope you can join us go to slate.com slash live for tickets and slate plus members get 30 percent off I am so looking forward to this live show. I love the city of Philadelphia. We will actually be in Glenside, a lovely northern suburb. Um, but I want everyone to come out before my mom scoops up all the tickets. Yes. On Thursday morning, President Trump sent a letter to Kim Jong-un canceling their June 12th summit scheduled in Singapore. It comes a day after North Korea publicly destroyed its nuclear test site, its underground nuclear test site. It was surprising. It wasn't with this administration. Nothing, I suppose, is ever that surprising because the whole point is is surprise. But it did seem as though President Trump really wanted to have a summit. He wanted the spectacle of it. He wanted the the uh, world's attention. He wanted a chance to get some kind of victory. Um, John, you've been covering the story all morning. Is there any sense coming out of the Trump administration about why they decided they they couldn't go through with this? No, there's not at, at the moment. I mean, we're it's still all moving pieces. There's on the one hand the president's uh, letter to His Excellency Kim Jong Un. It says basically, sadly, 
I'm reading here now from the president. Sadly, based on the tremendous anger and open hostility displayed in your most recent statements. And then he says because of that, he's going to call it off. He references also Kim Jong-un's talk about nuclear capabilities. This is referring to um, the recent comment by a North Korean official that um, Mike Pence was a political dummy for for saying that uh, the U.S. would follow the quote-unquote Libya model by um, deposing, uh, essentially deposing Kim Jong-un if he doesn't give up his nuclear capabilities. And the response was that he was a political dummy, and then they, the North Koreans said that they, they wouldn't want to get into a nuclear versus nuclear exchange um, if, if talks break down. So the question is, are they angry about what they said about Pence or is it about the nuclear exchange? I think no matter what happens in the, in the intervening days, I think as you suggested, what was extraordinary about the president this week is that he was being the moderating force on a number of different things. He recognized that the North Koreans are, are made nervous by references to Libya, of course, because uh, Gaddafi, after giving up his uh, weapons of mass destruction, ended up being overthrown and killed. He also said that he would be okay with a nuclear phase-out of their program in, in, uh, in phases and that it would be delayed, no longer uh, insisting and I was never really quite sure whether they were insisting, but nevertheless, never, no longer insisting that they give up their nuclear weapons as a precondition for meeting. So he seemed to be doing things to kind of keep everything on the beam. This does seem like quite a, a zag from, the, from where he'd been going earlier in the week. So given the zigging and zagging, does this seem like tactics or does it just seem like being all over the place? I, I fundamentally... I can't see how John Bolton bringing up the original comparison to Libya wasn't an effort to undermine the whole idea of, like, peace negotiations to begin with. Because to invoke Libya, given the history of Libya, is to say, like, give up your nuclear weapons and then and we'll promise everything's going to go great for you. And then a few years later, like, you, dear leader, will be, you know, unceremoniously and humiliatingly, like, dragged and shot and killed by your own people and to have, like, the the end that every despot fears. I just... so. So when you talk about the Libya model, we have to talk about two different things. One is what John Bolton was talking about when he was asked the question on Face the Nation, which was the Libya model in terms of a regime of inspections that would that would monitor and make sure that North Korea was living up to its um, commitments. So that was that. That's what he was talking about when he referred to the Libya model. Now, then we had this extraordinary thing where the president said, "We're not following the Libya model." So through his um, uh, uh, national security advisor under the bus, even though that's precisely what he's following with respect to a a regime of inspection that will make sure they're following up on what they're doing. Remember, they have problems with the Iran deal because it doesn't, they in their eyes, have a sufficient process for making sure Iran's not breaking the rules. So the president does still believe in the Libya model as defined by his national security advisor. However, in public, he said he doesn't. But then what the president said, this is not Mike Pence, this is the president. The president said, but I do believe in the Libya model when it comes to if North Korea doesn't follow doesn't follow through and give up its nuclear program. So what he was essentially doing is embracing North Korea's definition of what the Libya model means, which means regime change. Now, what's crazy about that, not crazy, but fascinating, is that what the president's essentially arguing is that that's what the American involvement in Libya was all about, was essentially deposing Gaddafi it, and punishment for his nuclear program. It wasn't. The nuclear program that he shuttered in 2003 was a part of a deal with Bush, the uh, NATO uh, arrangement to protect Benghazi was with President Obama. So they're not even related. Um, 
Nevertheless, the president basically used it as a hammer to say to North Korea, you know, give up your program or else, which is not what Bolton was explicitly saying. Now, you can argue, well, he knew what he was doing by raising the specter. That's what I was arguing. Yeah, I mean, maybe. But but the um, the president certainly didn't need to take it as far as he did. He didn't need to be explicit in being actually more combative out loud than Bolton was. Then again, this week, Mike Pence, the vice president, was combative and embraced this notion of Libya in the way the president had and in the way that is most fearful to the North Koreans. They all could have said all we meant was we want to be able to look and see if you've given up and done what you've said you're going to do. We don't mean regime change. And that's what's so funny about this, because the president this week did say that. He said what happened in Libya was that that the U.S. gave Qaddafi no protections. What we're offering Kim Jong-un, he said, is you'll be prosperous, you'll be protected if you give up your nuclear. So he was going further than anybody goes, and, and certainly goes at this stage in the negotiation, promising to protect North Korea if they gave up their nuclear program. Do you think the people in the Trump administration and in and, and our defense establishment actually believe that they can get North Korea to give up nuclear weapons? Do they do they really think that that is an attainable goal? It doesn't – it seems to me entirely yeah. re- unrealistic to think that a con- country that has spent so much energy developing nuclear weapons and now has it, – it, it has the most powerful deterrent in the world, an effective way of delivering that deterrent, that they would possibly give that up at this point. So I think the first question is, do they really have the effectable deterrent, right? Because the nature of the actual precise nature of their program and how good the missiles are and whether they can reenter and all of that is still really up in the air. Um, Now, they've gotten along and they're further along than some analysts predicted, although even the intelligence agencies dispute that. But they don't – it's not like they got a bunch of uh, nuclear missiles stockpiled. What they do have and would continue to have presumably after this is 10,000 – the ability to rain 10,000 missiles a minute on South Korea and the largest arsenal – I believe it's the largest – arsenal of nerve gas in on the planet. So – and that all is in place, which is what makes this talk of war and military, uh, you know, and punishing Kim Jong-un like Gaddafi if he doesn't give up his nuclear plan – you know, jumps over the fact that the Secretary of Defense says if there was actual hostilities with North Korea, it would be more gruesome and devastating than any war that we've ever seen anywhere on this planet ever. Um, and that shouldn't be shouldn't be forgotten. So um, I don't know what the thinking is really. I think actually what the thinking is is, is they'll get this they'll get back to the table in some form, or they'll continue just kind of in this um, fussy stage where there is at least channels of dialogue, but not an actual meeting scheduled. And that's why you ha- that's why you don't do this thing at the high level that it's been discussed and debated in the last few weeks, because this often happens in negotiation. It took three years for Nixon and Kissinger to work out the, the trip to China, which was basically just a trip to go and shake hands. I mean, it was there, nothing like giving up your entire nuclear program. It took three years to work that out. And it takes before Nixon ever went. And so this was being done in public in a rushed fashion, and what looks like a normal breakdown in negotiation is now happening on the main stage and so takes on all this more weight. Do you think, Emily, that that we're going to end up with some kind of summit and some kind of at least cosmetic agreement that Trump is going to end up uh, waving around? It's hard to – it's hard to – for me to imagine that he would give up the chance to get such a win – 
Yeah, I had thought that that would be the driving energy too, but I also wonder if the more hawkish, warmongering energy from Bolton and Pence, and I assume Pompeo, although he is like the guy who was jovially shaking hands last week with um, his counterpart. I thought that, um, I don't know, it feels like now there are these two competing um, tendencies and it's hard to say. I mean, for sure, the like drama of is the summit on or off is going to continue to go on just for the like, you know, apprentice like series TV appeal of it. And like, and Trump seems to be totally fine with that. But I guess what I wonder about and John, your description of the whole like Libya model was helpful for this. It seems like Trump himself scrambled the meanings of what um, Bolton had said and what the North Koreans were hearing. I mean, no wonder the North Koreans were interpreting it as extending to the um, death of Gaddafi, given Trump's kind of threatening saber rattling, even if it was in a different context. And so you just wonder if the president's lack of command of these historical analogies and the way he uses words so loosely is going to make the whole thing like impossible to pull off. I I think what you just I think you've got it, it just precisely right and and th- again that's why you don't uh, have the, you know, that's why you don't do this all out in public even if you had somebody who was read in down to their toenails uh, and knew just what they were doing you're dealing with a I mean this is not you know this is not Nixon going to China uh, communist China is not North Korea it was a bigger player. But it, it is similar in the sense that when Nixon was dealing with, with Mao and Premier Zhou Enlai, they, the U.S. had not had contact with China since 1949. So it was dealing with a, a kind of hermit kingdom at the time. And so it was all very opaque. And it's equally opaque now. So um, you got to kind of be read in and not just kind of winging it. And they have kind of boasted, John Bolton essentially boasted that the president would kind of wing it when he got to the meeting on the 12th. I'm not sure that's good for just the reason you pointed out about kind of messing up the Libya message. And are we seeing a kind of similar phenomenon in these like weird stalled, I don't know what to call them, trade negotiations with China where you have different members of the administration with really different core set of ideological beliefs jockeying for position? Who gets to negotiate? Is it going to be the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, or is it going to be – Someone with a whole, you know, like less um, a, a more pro free trade stance, and as all of that goes on internally in the administration, the Chinese are looking on like wh- they, it's like you don't know literally who you're negotiating with because the, the of the lack of unity from inside the White House or the well, it is just this is not exactly your point, Emily, but it's it's kind of tragic. Uh, there's been the Trump is clearly really wrapped up in the theater of this North Korea stuff, and he's excited about it. And meanwhile, the China negotiations are so much more important. It's right. such a bigger deal for some for Americans and and for the overall economic future of our country and the world. And we don't have any clarity about what we're up to. There's this amazing photo. I don't know if you guys saw this photo that was making the rounds in China. Uh, it's a photo of the. U.S. trade negotiators with their Chinese counterparts uh, sitting at a long table. And on the left are the Chinese uh, officials who are young and have a kind of vitality to them. And on the right are a bunch of incredibly old-looking white American guys. 
Wilbur, Wilbur Ross, Ross among, among them. them. And then some put some of those are people were members of Congress, not actually our negotiators, uh, but whatever. And then there's a in China, what's been making the rounds is there's a similar photo from 1901 of the negotiations to over the Boxer Rebellion and the the a negotiation which was extremely humiliating for the Qing dynasty at the time. And it was it showed U.S. the U.S. Uh, negotiators at the at time. At that point, we had, we had the these young, young these young bucks with their flowing mustaches, and then there was these these Chinese officials who who could barely sit up, who were uh, desiccated and ancient. And it just the idea that this is flipped that here we were the aging, calcified power, and China is filled with you know youth and energy. And I found it I found it really on the nose and and. Disappointing. I mean, that's not exactly to the substance of the negotiations, but it was as as visual. It was stunning. So, just connecting the China trade negotiations and North Korea for a second, John. So, so North Korea is a much bigger problem and a much bigger issue for China in many ways than it is for us. So, what is China going to do now that we're out of the summit? Well, in the first days when they were talking about having an agreement or having some kind of sit down and talk, somebody at the State Department said, we've got to make sure that China is there with their hand on the throat of Kim Jong-un so that he doesn't back away from the table. So if one of the things that's going on here, and there's some indication of this from the Secretary of State now, who says that what's irritated them was that the fact that the North Koreans weren't kind of answering the phone when they were trying to work out the, the negotiations over the meeting, is, is, is China sitting there putting the pressure on North Korea? And that's what we're going to see in the next coming days. If they, uh, if they are there saying, look, the president in his letter to you said, and I'm quoting from the president, if you change your mind, having to do with this most important summit, please do not hesitate to call me or write. So he's left the door open. And if the Chinese say, you got to walk through that door, then we'll know that, um, you know, the, that, that, that China is playing that powerful relationship. Slate Plus members get special extra bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. You get that if you become a member by paying $35 a year. What a small fee to get such excellent bonus content. And today we're gonna have a we're gonna have a bonus segment that's gonna be about our cultural magnets and our cultural repellents. I'm gonna leave that mysterious. Magnets and repellents. Uh, but go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
So John was just summoned away to anchor a CBS News special report, so we're not going to have him for the rest of the show, which is sad. We only got his insights about uh, North Korea, but he's got. We should a, have let him talk more. Oh well, he talked plenty. He he, he had lots of wisdom. He had many smart things to say, but uh, he uh, won't be here for our next two topics and for our chatter, unfortunately. But Emily and I will soldier on as we do. We will soldier forward. Under a pen name, Stacey Abrams is the author of several romantic suspense novels. Did you know that, Emily? I absolutely. I know a lot of things about Stacey Abrams because I went to law school with her and I've known her forever. And I should just say I have from knowing her forever, tons of respect and affection for her. That's good. Well, the fact that she's the author of several romantic suspense novels is one of my favorite things about this extremely appealing Georgia politician who I have never met. Um, But she is going to need a lot of a lot of uh, romance and a lot of suspense to win the Georgia gubernatorial election in November. But first, she has had a really good week. She crushed another Democratic uh, Georgia legislator, Stacey Evans, on Tuesday in the Democratic primary for governor. And it has raised the possibility that she could be the first black woman ever elected as a governor of a state, which is a pretty dismal fact when you think about it. But her campaign is a fascinating case study for the Democratic Party, and it's going to be really, really interesting to see if she can turn that primary win into a general election upset in November. So, Emily, first of all, she is your uh, an old friend of yours and classmate of yours. What is interesting about her? Well, I mean, she has this career in Georgia politics that I think has been very determined. She was elected to the state legislature. She became the minority leader. She was the first black woman in that position. And she has had the ambition of being governor for quite a while and has really been an organizer as well as a politician. So someone who recruited other progressives and African-Americans to run for office and someone who really put a lot of time and energy and elbow grease into registering minority voters and other people to vote in Georgia. And so what we're going to see tested in this election is this theory about whether Democrats can win or do well, because remember, she is an underdog in Georgia, like any Democratic nominee would be the underdog. We're going to find out how a Democrat can do by trying to raise turnout among African-American voters and young voters and people who absolutely tend to pull the lever for Democrats, but don't tend to come out in the same numbers. The opponent that Stacey Abrams had in the primary, whose name was Stacey Evans, this was indeed the race between the two Stacys. This Stacey Evans, who was white, argued that it was bad for our democracy to try to move to the left and turn out all these new people as opposed to courting the kind of moderate centrists in Georgia who traditionally swing elections. And Stacey Abrams is part of a cohort of people. There's a guy named Steve Phillips who wrote a book a few years ago called Brown is the New White. And they've been arguing that Democrats need to kind of wholeheartedly embrace this new coalition and sign up new voters and get them to the polls as opposed to constantly trying to triangulate and triage. And there's an argument in favor of this, an argument against it. And I think Democrats really need to figure out how to both appeal to this um, emerging cohort and also still appeal to white, low-income and working-class voters 
all these folks should share a lot of um, the same economic interests. But as we've seen the country polarize around cultural issues or other markers of that separate white people from the rest of the country, this is a really interesting strategy. So it's you can look around and see examples that support whatever thesis you want to see here. So if you look at Alabama and the recent election where Doug Jones uh, upset Roy Moore, now that was highly anomalous because Roy Moore, you know, had very credible, ac- you know, of accusations of 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 uh, child sex sex abuse hanging over him. But Jones won a huge majority of black votes, and and black voters turned out in huge numbers to vote for him. And he, but he was essentially a white moderate Democrat. And he also won white moderate Democratic votes. On the other hand, if you look at Georgia's own history, there have been these uh, white moderate Democrats, young white moderate Democrats. There was a a Jimmy Carter grandson who ran for something. Jason Carter. Yeah. And a, and a, lost in 2014. And a nun, a, a Sam Nunn daughter. Lost in 2014 right. for Senate. Yeah. And both of them kind of abjectly failed at this. So so you can I think you can you can you can argue it round, you can argue it flat. What's the reason to think Georgia is a it's a red state that is getting slightly bluer, but it's hard to think that there is a majority of Democrats in Georgia, for sure. Hillary Clinton lost Georgia by four, five points, I think. And some of the estimates I was seeing were that compared to 2014, Stacey Abrams needs to turn out 200,000 more votes than Jason Carter got when he lost the governor's race four years ago. There are many more than 200,000 people of color are not registered to vote in Georgia. I think the number is still like a million. So you can see that there are some tantalizing but quite difficult math here. I interviewed Stacey about these questions a couple years ago when I was working on a profile of Kamala Harris. And I was looking back at that interview this morning and I was just struck by like how long and how deep Please, Stacey's been thinking about those issues because at that point, Harris was mounting this run for Senate in California and there were no black women in the Senate. And as we still have, no black female governors and very few African-Americans in either of those roles. And what Stacey was talking about was what she called a history of weak opportunity and the idea that traditionally African-Americans who are prominent politicians are either big city mayors or there are congressional representatives who represent majority-minority districts. And so then when they try to run statewide, they don't have a track record of building a coalition across racial lines, and they go to the funders, and the funders look at them, and they're white funders, and they're skeptical of their statewide appeal. And so Stacey was saying about Kamala Harris, like, this is a big deal for us, other black women Democrats who are trying to run. There is no one else like her. Now, California obviously is yeah, a very, very different, different state. state. From Georgia. But now this is like another test run of these questions. And I think the thing about Stacey is she is so appealing. She is the kind of person that other people really like and want to get on board for. I mean, one way to so Emily's list um, kind of early on gave her an award and that really boosted her prominence and was important for her. One way to think about Stacey is like if the National Democratic Party and the funders cannot get behind her, it's hard to see what black female candidate for governor they can get behind. 
And another kind of interesting facet of this, historically, the women who are women of color who've been elected governor are Susanna Martinez um, in New Mexico and Nikki Haley in South Carolina, and they were both Republicans. So Stacey really is like a new phenomenon that's happening. And I do think there's going to be a ton of excitement about her among national uh, activists. Like you can you can really see that she'd be able to generate a big get out the vote effort. So we'll see. Well, it's also the case, Emily, of course, that the resistance uh, to use the, the capital R resistance has and the rise in political activism in the Trump era has been fueled by women and African-Americans and young people. And it is just a fact that you have to have candidates who represent that. You can't. You simply cannot say we're going to have this movement that is powered by African Americans and women, but we're not going to have African Americans and women who actually then carry forth and serve in political office and run for political office. So, so you do have to. I mean, just as a as a stone cold fact of of reality, it, it, they have to be rep- represented and. Stacey Abrams seems to be an astonishingly appealing version of that. So, reg- and she crushed her opposition. So, and qualified and capable yeah. too, right? I mean, not that you were saying anything else, but like, it's super helpful when that stone cold fact has like yeah. excellent standard bearers right. to make it come alive. So, Republicans have had a version of this debate. Obviously, if you are a, a Republican in Oklahoma, the party has just gone very far to the right, and it's and it's allowed. Uh, extremely conservative candidates to run because there's they know there's once you win the primary there's no chance that a democrat can beat you so so there's this uh safety there where republicans of course have run into trouble is where they've run exceptionally conservative candidates in places which are gettable for democrats or which are up in the air and so you think of delaware where they ran um that extremely conservative candidate christine o'donnell and in nevada where they ran Another oh right, that really right wing like yeah. Sarah Palin esque yeah, or and, and then the, uh, the 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 Looney Tunes in Missouri Todd Aiken who had those crazy views about rape and so they've lost winnable seats by running the people who were too conservative in places that were essentially purple. It's clear like the Democrats should run very progressive candidates in very blue states. They're safe. They should do it. But but should the National Party be clamoring to make sure? that candidates in a place like Georgia are are more moderate. And I, maybe it's a different question because actually there's a there's the moderate question. So it's like what your actual views are. And then there's a strategy question, which Presentation. is, well, no, it's who you try to turn out. Yes, yes. Because it, it seems like Evans and Abrams in Georgia had the same views on everything. Basically, it's right. But Evans was approach. saying essentially like I'm going to appeal to white working class moderate voters. And um, Abrams was saying something else. I personally don't think purity tests really serve the interests of um, either party. But I also think that insisting on centrist moderation across the board is a mistake and that it just depends on the candidate and the race and the location. I don't I feel like you don't have to have a big philosophy of this. Right. Right. And and I think you hope that Stacey Abrams turns out to be like Scott Walker. Scott Walker was somebody who basically didn't he appealed to very conservative voters in Wisconsin, but he got them very excited, and he won in— Well, it's a 50-50 state. Yeah, yeah by, but by getting a, a very excited base vote. Yes. And has been a, a pretty successful governor by the standards of the people who voted for him. 
Right. And then you want a Democratic Party that has a big enough tent for Stacey Abrams and Connor Lamb, who just won the special election in Pennsylvania with a much more like centrist um, message. How uh, there's I, I mean, I I don't know. There's no easy way to put this. There's going to be a ton of sort of implicit racism in the vote in Georgia. I suspect it's going to be really hard for Stacey Abrams to win because I think there are going to be a lot of people in Georgia who do not want to have a black woman as the governor of the state, whether they will say that explicitly or implicitly. And do, do, is this something that she can address directly or that the Democratic Party can address directly or do people just have to avoid it? If there is someone in the political establishment who is well equipped to just like look someone in the eye and talk about race in a way that is um, candid and unsparing, I mean, I think she's going to do as good a job as anyone can do with that problem. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The various Trump investigations were in full cacophony this week. There was a an orchestra playing on each and every track. The president impeded justice once again by demanding via tweet that the Department of Justice investigate a supposed spy placed in his campaign. That was, a, of course, a grotesque inversion of the real news of the week, which is deep reporting in Emily's own New York Times, revealing how the FBI had twisted and pretzeled itself during the campaign not to push hard on the investigation and to avoid doing things that would bring too much attention or too much heat to it and even to withhold damaging information that it learned so as not to end up tainting the election. Uh, elsewhere, Devin Nunes, the Trumpist who's been heading the House investigation to Russia, has is today uh, attempting to extract more secret information about FBI investigations and expose FBI methodology and what else? There's oh, the story that Eric Prince, George Sater, and Don Trump Jr., which is a, a, tri a trio of wickedness, um, they met before the election with Sater offering help from two other foreign governments, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, to help win the election. And for don't Trump. forget Elliot Broidy is part of that story. And there's oh, like oh, serious yeah. pay to play going oh. on with Broidy and Nader setting up a billion dollar contract from the yeah. UAE or the Saudis in exchange for more anti-Qatar policy and meetings that Donald Trump was himself yes. in, which seems yes. notable. Yes. Oh, and there's also more Michael Cohen news, one of his business partners cooperating with investigators, also news that, that Cohen seems to have facilitated a meeting between Trump and Ukraine's president that also led, seems to have led to Ukraine stopping its investigation of wrongdoing by Paul Manafort and other connections to the Trump campaign. Plus, Donald Trump is using a totally unsecure phone, right? That's another That's another thing. But that doesn't really have anything to do with the Russian investigation. <laughs> Emily, it is so freaking exhausting. It is so exhausting, this investigation. Does it feel to you like it is moving in a direction? Moving in a direction? Yeah. It's moving in some direction. I was very um, helped this week by a framing from Adam Sower of The Atlantic in which he said, look, 
yes, there are a million different threads of this, and it can seem confusing, but it's all one scandal. It's all about corruption. It's all about hiding facts that seem to be bad for Trump and various people surrounding Trump. And it's all about what happens when you let people who have a lot of like nefarious business dealings and are willing to basically serve up American government policy or try to get other countries to do things in exchange for money and contracts. And that we're we're having like a torrent of different versions of that same story. And it does increasingly look that way. Can we linger on that server point for a second? So, yes. so I was listening to Slow Burn, the Slate podcast about Watergate, and one of the points that they were making about Watergate is that fundamentally all of Watergate is is about uh, Richard Nixon's desire to extract um, political victory over his enemies and to defeat them politically. It wasn't really a scandal about money. It wasn't really a scandal about uh, corruption. It was a scandal about trying to uh, power. B- about power, but about using about using the instruments of government to win political victory. What you're saying or what Sirwer is saying is this is not fundamentally a scandal about policy or even about politics and political power. It's about money. It's about using yeah, about using individual it's, gain, yeah, it's about right. Like using your place in this circle to get stuff and then that the people who are supposed to be the public servants in the White House preventing this because you would not have the American government Qatar policy up for sale don't care. Right. So so that there are things that Trump is doing in policy that you one may find unappealing or wrongheaded that he you know his immigration policy may be wrongheaded he he uh, his trade policy may be wrongheaded but that's not really the the scandal is about all of the other things that he's doing which which directly or indirectly for him and his inner circle and for his closest political donors and allies uh, enrich them yes that there's like a banana republic esque um version of our government that is swirling around in all these allegations and that that also relates to the obstruction of justice possibilities for Trump himself, that when you have people, including your children, involved in this kind of activity, you have a lot of reason to try to shut down investigations. And that's what we're seeing more and more. You know, Trump's like incessant tweeting these claims about a spy, the, you know, the the witch hunt drumbeat. Look, I mean, sure, I guess he just like thinks the whole thing is pesky and a shadow and that's why he's so outraged. Or there's a lot of guilt here that um, either his own or people close to him that he's trying to prevent coming out. I mean, it's hard for me at least to (laughs) let that potential interpretation go in this moment. One thing that continues to confuse me is that only a very small number of people are getting rich off of these deals. Most of the public is not benefiting from Scott Pruitt flying first class. They're not benefiting from uh, Elliot Broidy getting a huge contract from the government of the UAE. They're not. They're not benefiting from from Qatar investing in a Jared Kushner uh, or Kushner family real estate deal. That really. They're not benefiting from the you know huge tax cuts that are going to the very rich. That most Americans genuinely are not benefiting from this. And I it's weird to me that there has been so little ability of of Democrats and of the Trump's critics to make this not about um sort of legal and and you know violations of law, but rather about man, there's a bunch of people who are getting 
rich off of our backs and the rest of us are just they don't they don't give a damn about the rest of us like that seems to me the, the that's the the message that should be coming yeah, I mean, you can certainly see the appeal of kind of shifting from obsessing over collusion to talking a lot about corruption and the kind of, you know, sponging that you're talking about in which the American government starts to look like a much less illustrious sort of government, like, you know, an oligarchy, any kind of place where you have a few people at the top who are taking things that they're that the rest of us are not getting. Does the legal investigation, which of course has to continue and has to move forward in the way that it, it does, is that a distraction for for Democrats and the president's political critics to making the political case that the real issue is corruption? Well, Frank Bruni made that argument in the New York Times this week, and I can see his point. On the other hand, if you care about rule of law and the lessons from Watergate about independent investigations and making sure that the president is not above the law, then just continuing to have Robert Mueller get to do his job is really important. So I'm not willing to say, you know, we shouldn't worry about whether Rod Rosenstein and Mueller remain in office. And then, you know, this week I got concerned about compromises that Rosenstein was making in order to keep things going. This briefing that, you know, Nunes and Paul Ryan are getting separately from the Gang of Eight bipartisan briefing. Supposedly, there are going to be two of those things happening, I believe, today. And then this referral of Trump's accusation about a spy in his campaign, which doesn't seem to be any evidence of a spy, but that's now going to the inspector general at the Justice Department. And that was the sort of punting or compromise that Rosenstein appeared to reach so that he wouldn't have to open a criminal investigation without any kind of real factual basis or resign to avoid doing that. So there's all of this monkeying with the mechanisms of government that protect independent investigations. And I think it is important. I do also think, though, that from the point of view of like the American public and people who um, are not you know, paying a lot of attention to all of this and care less about the abstract legal principles that like these stories about um, billion dollar contracts and um, the American government appearing to be up for sale. Like those are important, too. Yeah. I mean, I it's it's almost like there was a there was a significant number of voters who voted for Trump because they felt that Hillary Clinton was a, a corrupt person. And they and they listened right. to Trump say crooked, crooked, crooked Hillary and they're drain the swamp. And you can have whatever views you want of of uh, Trump's policies, um, but it is very hard to make a case that he has drained the swamp. And it's very easy to make a case that he's making it worse with everything that he does. And in particular, he's making it worse in that he himself and his closest friends and cronies are enriching themselves the most. I, Great, and because he's not separated from his own business interests, he's actually there's probably self enrichment going on in all of this too. And then there's like Don Jr., right? I mean, I feel like in our thinking about whether the president is going to be indicted or impeached, let's not forget the implications of having close his kid potentially in the middle of all of this. I feel like somehow that's gotten a little lost. Do you think Eric Trump is like I'm a genius compared to my brother, Eric? <laughs> Don Jr. really it, it really is sad this poor kid because there's Ivanka who's clearly she's clearly smart and she's kept her hands very 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 clean although I don't know I'm not convinced that Jared Kushner is out of the woods we'll see um, I don't know I mean, he'll get Qatar to buy the woods if necessary 
Right, that'll <laughs> and burn the woods the down, and then he'll evict all the animals living in the woods for failure to pay rent on time. Uh, Don Jr. is 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 one of the great characters in this whole thing. I feel like he all he wanted was to live a life where he could just go hunting and play golf, and now he finds himself in games that he does not understand in a world that he doesn't understand, being played by people who are much much smarter than he is. Well, and a taste of power is addictive, right? And really tempting. Yeah. You know what is weird to me about Trump and all the people around Trump is how rarely you hear any of them talk about acting for the public good. (laughs) All of the things that Trump says are all about himself. They're all about investigations of him. He never talks about the public. It's weird. I don't. Yeah. Well. I mean, this is the thing about being caught up in an investigation like this. You know, one other thing I was thinking about this week and this whole like, you know, yes, the FBI did um, ask an informant to have meetings with various Trump inner circle folks who they were worried about because that's how the FBI conducts investigations. So in this whole like conspiracy theory spy notion. We've seen this pattern right now for over the last several months in which there's some really heated accusation. It was like the Devin Nunes thing about people being unmasked in the government. Then it was that crazy Nunes memo that uh, got released that turned out to not hold up. They keep trying to come up with ways to discredit Mueller. Um, Each one kind of the, the like degree of heat goes up, even as the allegations don't seem to ever really like play out. And what we don't see, with the exception of like a couple of people like Jeff Flake, are the Republican leadership saying, come on, like, really? No, instead, you see Paul Ryan like saying, absolutely, you know, the House Intelligence Committee should have this information and I'm going to this meeting and taking seriously the kind of conspiracy mongering that is about discrediting um, the FBI and the Justice Department in this investigation. And I guess you just like keep throwing spaghetti against the wall until something really sticks. Uh, But it gives this sense of constantly um, discrediting the government, like something must be wrong with all of this, um, all these accusations, and also this kind of slow moving constitutional crisis in which, you know, Rosenstein is still in place, Mueller's still doing his job, but these norms are getting viciously eroded along the way. Right. And in terms of political effectiveness, I actually, it's worked. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily Bazelon, when you are going to have a elaborate, an elaborate uh, fruit-themed cocktail at Bazelon Central, what are you going to be chattering about with the other Bazelons? I can't believe I actually saying I'm going to be chattering about this over a cocktail. But the Supreme Court uh, ruled this week five to four in a case called Epic. There must be more to the title of that case, but we'll just give it a little shorthand there. The court ruled that employers can um, require workers to settle 
claims individually in private arbitration instead of banding together in class action lawsuits in court. This is a case about wage theft of employers not paying the full amount they're due. And if you put all of those claims together and they're against the same employer, so they have a lot of commonality, then you could interest a lawyer um, in taking the cases, a lawyer who might actually expect to get paid at the end. But if you make workers go one by one to forced private arbitration, then you've made all of the claims essentially worthless from the point of view of getting representation. And what is it issued here is a question of how to read the Fair Labor Standards Act, which protects collective bargaining and workers' rights. It's a 1935 New Deal era law. How to read that law against the Federal Arbitration Act, a law from 1925, which provides for arbitration and was written at a time on arbitration. And this is like the private dis- settlement of disputes outside of the court system. In 1925, arbitration what involved two different merchants usually. So it was like, you know, different equally um, powerful corporate entities trying to settle disputes. In recent years, the Supreme Court has kind of resurrected the Federal Arbitration Act and turned its language into words that apply very broadly to consumer class actions and now to employee class actions. And so What we basically have here is, you know, the conservative majority of the court making a very pro-corporate ruling that will make it much harder for low-income workers to recover lost wages to, to make their claims in court. And we also just have a problem of antiquated laws. Neither the FAA, the Federal Arbitration Act, nor the Fair Labor Standards Act were really written anticipating these questions about collective action and collective lawsuits that they are now being applied to. And, you know, Whatever you think of uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch's opinion for the majority, he did point out correctly that Congress can change this policy if Congress doesn't like it. Of course, this Congress is not going to take that kind of action. But this case really reflects this ongoing struggle we have over laws written long ago and the struggle to apply them in a modern context as opposed to creating new laws that would be more clearly applicable and perhaps remedy some of these problems that uh, that are currently being just sort of left out there. Emily, I have a question. Uh, yeah. Not about the class action nature of it. But is there any case to be made for uh, if you have a dispute with your employer, in fact, you're, you're an employee – that uh, is there is there a good case to be made that actually arbitration is in fact a better mechanism than the full armature of the courts? That this is why be, what would it's be just the quicker. It's quicker. There's less friction. There's you, just less process. I'm just I'm someone who's so skeptical of the idea that for every problem the solution is a lawsuit. Yeah, that's a totally legitimate point of view. I mean. Empirically speaking, in the consumer realm, there are very, very few arbitration actions that are brought. So what we know about the Supreme Court's previous rulings is that essentially because there's such a power imbalance and people don't know how to go to arbitration, it's confusing and employers really dominate in that setting. People just don't bring these lawsuits anymore. And so employers just basically are allowed to, you know, steal a lot of money from consumers. I don't know if that's true as much in the employee context. I bet that there's some pretty good evidence that this effectively shuts the door on a lot of employee actions. But um, it's possible that there are certain disputes that are better off 
off settled quickly and in private. It depends really how balanced or imbalanced the arbitration setting it is and is and how easy or hard it is to access. Right, right, right. That question of balance. I mean, I think the what from what I've read about arbitration is just that the person that the employer who goes through hundreds of these arbitrations, who has effectively hired the arbitrator, has an enormous amount of power. Yeah, you have a repeat player problem. The people, the companies that provide arbitration services know, you know, like who's paying the bills. And um, I think often that creates a kind of bias that it makes it difficult for the one-time person with the complaint. So my chatter is about a really interesting piece I read in Slate uh, last night by Yasha Monk, it is about an organization called Patriots and Pragmatists. Kind of great title, I have to Patriots say. Patriots and Pragmatists. We complained that it was too much alliteration, but I Patriots like Patriots and Pragmatists is a until now secret informal organization that was set up by people concerned about uh, the rising disagreement between left and right in this country, the huge uh, political fissures that are happening, and the way in which partisanship has become the dividing, the, the, the principal divide in our society. And it's a it's it's a a mechanism, a kind of gathering together of people on the right and left to talk about issues of concern to them. And in particular, it's an anti-populist organization. It's it's designed uh, around uh, trying to find ways to to protect the strong, great institutions that we've had from the rising authoritarianism and populist authoritarianism that we see emerging in the United States and around the world. In particular, Monk writes um, quite eloquently about David French, who's a National Review writer, a very conservative kind of anti-Trump National Review writer, and about Monk finding commonality, not on political issues necessarily, but on humanity and on some of these larger ideas about authoritarianism together. And it was it's, it's a very um, moving piece about the possibility of of alliance and about finding uh, agreement rather than difference with people who are your political opponents. So I hope Patriots and Pragmatists thrives and continues now that it's come out of the shadows. I hope that it is a grand success and that we all find David French's and Yasha Monk's in our life to, to make common cause with. That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Izzy Road. You can follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest or join the conversation at Facebook.com slash GabFest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, David Plotz, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. And please come to our Philly live show on July 18th at Slate.com slash live for tickets. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.